This is Salt and Spine. It really feels like people are listening in a way that they weren't before and that we're sort of kind of evaluating these industry norms and how they've been harmful in the past and what we can do to kind of negate some of that harm. There's a lot to be done to get things on a more equitable playing field. I'm concerned, for sure. I'm heartened by what I am seeing, but it often feels like too little too late. You're not going to make change with small patches and, you know, picking up the phone and cold calling people of color to say, do you want a book deal? Here's a, a sweaty wad of cash. Your next great book editor might be a line cook right now, sweating it out. You know, how are you going to know? What changes do you need to make to bridge that gap? Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine. You're tuning in today for the second episode in our month-long series on equity and representation in the cookbook and food media industries. Last week, we took a look at what happened at Bon Appetit magazine and what lessons it imparted for food media. Food writers Tammy Teclamarium and Kathy Irway, as well as Bon Appetit research director Joey Hernandez, weighed in on that show. You can find it in our archives. Now, this week, we're turning our focus to the cookbook industry. We've talked with our guests over the past two years about representation, or rather a lack thereof, in cookbook publishing. And today, we're taking a deeper dive into some of the systemic issues that are plaguing the industry, taking a look at how power is held by mostly white people still today, and what a reformed progressive cookbook industry could look like. We put out asks to cookbook authors, to agents, those are the folks who work on behalf of the author to sell their book to a publisher, and to cookbook editors themselves. And we're thrilled to have six different folks that you'll hear from today. And one quick note, if you are listening with children, there is explicit language in today's episode. First, let's start off with our conversation with cookbook author and photographer Christina Gill. Now, Christina, who is a black woman, is a native of Nashville, but now lives in Rome. She spent a decade as the food and drink editor for Design Sponge. And the early concept that led to her first cookbook, Tasting Rome, was inspired by interactions about food that she'd have with Roman taxi drivers. She'd be taxiing around the capital city for work, often for long rides, and would strike up a conversation. The taxi industry here is almost entirely native Romans. And so I knew that that was a good sample size, like a good sector to look into. So I just started asking these taxi drivers what they liked to eat because the taxi drivers are not 95% men and they either like to talk about soccer. I know that's stereotypical or about food. And I found that they were very, very, very specific in their food passion and knowledge. And they would always give me recipes. Before long, Christina had a bunch of little notebooks filled with recipes and notes from different taxi drivers. Naturally, she thought she'd write a cookbook, but she found it was too niche and decided that she'd broaden the scope, stripping out the taxi driver's perspective, but keeping the focus on Roman cuisine. The idea, the concept was there's so much folklore about these dishes in Rome where did carbonara come from? Well, nobody knows where it came from. But people come up with these stories that Romans, even Romans will tell you, um, it was, the idea was, come up with these dishes that Romans like to eat. What's the story of the dishes? How did they evolve over time? 
publishers took interest, and before long, the cookbook had two names tied to it. Christina, who would co-author the book, developing half of the recipes and shooting all the photography. Her co-author, Katie Parla, would take the other half of the work. But the partnership became toxic, and Christina found little to no support for her work from the publisher. Recently, she described the experience on Instagram, saying she, quote, fell into a three-year depression. So far, the worst three years of my life. There was turbulence during the making of it, but the majority of it was afterward. What happened in the simplest of terms is even though this was a co-authored book, my name didn't appear in the publicity and it was a 24-hour job trying to get my name in the publicity and trying to get the corrections for the press that was coming out. It was difficult. And, you know, consequently, because my name was left out of a lot of the press and consistently, it was, I don't want to say impossible, but it was virtually impossible for me to promote the book. I was cast as just the photographer. So I, you know, got questions like, well, how did you get your name on the front of the book if you're just the photographer? And I was looking at something the other day, someone asked me, um, why are we even talking to you if you're only the photographer? I, I got questions like that. And when I you know, go back to think about how many oppor- press opportunities I got to be able to promote the book, they were very few and far between. I was told that this instance was unique there was an industry professional who told me that she had not ever heard of anything this bad in her entire career, uh, which was almost 40 years. So I think that my case was pretty extreme. Christina describes some specifics, like that her publisher, Clarkson Potter, would intentionally leave her out of publicity and marketing materials. She wrote on Instagram that, quote, this is only a fraction of the humiliation and anguish that I endured. I won't share the worst things. In just a couple of months after publishing the book, Christina says the publisher offered her co-author a second cookbook deal without even asking for a proposal, but made no such offer to her. I did not receive an offer. And uh, I guess it was just like game over. The book sold very well. I think it's in its fourth printing. I think it went into three printings almost immediately, like very, very, very quickly. Uh, The book has sold well, continues to sell well. So usually what would happen is in within that four month marketing period after a book, that's when the iron is hot and you should strike for another deal. But what happened was that they, the publisher just went to her and said, hey, do another book. And, you know, mathematically, if someone is 50% of the team that's done a book that's selling well, then you would expect that both team members would be treated equally. And that's not what happened. The book, Tasting Rome, went on to be nominated for three cookbook awards from the International Association of Culinary Professionals, winning the Best International Cookbook in 2017. But for Christina, the experience still felt wrong and demoralizing. I think for a long time, and I alluded to this, I think I may put a sentence about this in my Instagram post, it was very difficult for me for the three years that I was dealing with it 
and really I just didn't want to touch the book until last year, just seeing it, touching it. It was an, a horrible experience. I asked Christina to share her thoughts on how to make a more equitable cookbook industry. The people involved, especially the decision makers, need to acknowledge that there is a problem or a shortcoming, if you want to cast it differently, and understand why they need to change. Because I don't think that it's enough just to cognitively say, we don't have diversity, but you need to understand why you need the diversity. And if people decide that they don't need the diversity or that it's just a numbers game, then the change is never going to be meaningful and it's never it's never really going to work. The other thing, and you touched on this, that I keep hearing is that there are no Black cookbook editors. And for that, I just say, make it happen. Last week, there was an article in the New York Times that Simon & Schuster just hired a publisher, uh, Dana Kennedy, I hope that's how she pronounces her last name, with no publishing experience. And you know, why did they hire her? It's because they valued her skill set. And they said, you know, not everybody needs to have publishing, you do need to have these other skills. And she makes up for it with all these other skills. And if you don't have, you know, executives who are in hiring positions, because this wouldn't have been just an HR interview, there would have been, you know, the the C-levels at the company looking at this, if you don't have executives in these positions who have the vision to make these assessments, they're not going to have the vision to lead their company during the necessary transition of being truly diverse and inclusive. So, you know, if I, if, if my blinders are on and I say, I can only have people who have publishing experience, then you don't have the vision. You're not going to be able to change. You're not going to be able to innovate. I don't actually think having a diverse and inclusive company is innovation, but you know, maybe for that person, it is innovation. And no, they're not going to make change with small patches and you know, picking up the phone and cold calling people of color to say, do you want a book deal? Here's a, a sweaty wad of cash. And see, we have five more books by people of color this year. Well, what does your marketing team look like? What is your, you know, what is your, I don't know, your sales team look like? What is your, whatever the other bits of the publishing company look like? If they don't look like those five book authors, then you're not doing a good job. These are things that people in these companies know they have to do. They have boards. People on these boards are not dumb by any stretch of the imagination, but, but it's all about wanting it to happen. If you want it to happen, it will. If you, assign, if you think that your reputational risk is very high for not making your company diverse, then you are going to deal with it. If you rank not having a diverse company as not a huge risk, then yeah, you're not going to take care of it. 
On Instagram, Christina wrote that she's been seeing publishers stand behind Black Lives Matter and say that they're, quote, here to amplify Black voices and help Black people. She continues, but when they actually had the chance to treat a Black woman the same as a white woman, nothing more, nothing less than equally, they actively chose not to at every opportunity, each move more grotesque than the previous. And even though the worst of my depression was during those three years, it wasn't until last year that I could open up my book without reliving the trauma. And now in 2020, I can say how proud I am of that book and how gorgeous it is and nice to cook from as a cookbook should be. Clarkson Potter posted an image of Christina on their Instagram while sharing several Black authors recently. They later updated the post to say, quote, We are deeply sorry and take accountability for Christina's negative experience at Clarkson Potter during the publication of Tasting Rome. We have been in conversation with Christina Gill and are comprehensively reviewing the situation internally. We are committed to giving space to diverse voices, and we take this very seriously. We asked Christina if she's talked to Clarkson Potter recently. I have spoken with them, but uh, we have, there has not yet been resolution to the situation. I expect it to happen any day now. Christina's co-author, Katie Parla, posted her own account on Instagram, but then deleted the post and has not commented since. Now, Christina's experience as a Black cookbook author is a singular story, but her experiences were echoed by many other people of color that we've spoken to in the industry. That's food writer and editor Christina Gill, author of Tasting Rome. You can follow her on Twitter at Christina Gill and on Instagram at Christina Gill Food. As we take a closer look this week at equity in the cookbook industry, we talked with a couple book agents who specialize in representing cookbook authors. Now, one part of the agent's role is to help the author sell their book to a publisher. So agents representing an author of color often face an added challenge of navigating a largely white industry peppered with systemically racist practices. Add to that that the landscape of cookbook agents also isn't very diverse. In fact, in our research for this episode, we were unable to find any Black agents that specialize in cookbooks. We were happy to speak, though, with two book agents. The first is Rika Alanik. Rika is a literary agent with the David Black Literary Agency. Previously, she was vice president and executive editor at Clarkson Potter, specializing in cookbooks and narrative nonfiction. And before she made her way into publishing, she worked in professional kitchens. One of the reasons I became a literary agent was so that I could affect a little bit more change in terms of who is authoring and also co-authoring cookbooks. I wasn't seeing the kinds of projects I wanted to publish from agents necessarily. Um, it was a lot of, you know, white, cis, het, male chefs cooking food that was not from necessarily from their background and not that one can only cook food from one's background, but there are certainly other voices we could be elevating as experts in this space. Rika has worked in the publishing industry now for nearly two decades, 16 years as an editor before moving to the agent side a few years back. I asked her to talk about how she approaches the pitches and proposals she receives and how she decides which authors she'll take on and which projects she'll champion. I mean, I say the same thing now that I said as an editor, I look for three things. I look for the voice, a strong voice, opinionated, expert, something to say. I look for the idea. Has this been done before? Is this unique? What is this adding to the cookbook you know, landscape? And then I look at the author platform. That can be social media, that can be other things, you know, it can be, you know, something as old fashioned as a blog or a newspaper column or whatever it is. But if there's some way that the author has built an audience. Now, sometimes a book can 
get by or a project can get bought with just two of those that are really strong. Maybe it's a single subject book and the idea is phenomenal and the author voice is fantastic. And, you know, the author platform is perhaps maybe not what's going to drive sales. Yet we're still in a moment where publishing is uber white. That's the industry at large, not just publishers that specialize in or include cookbooks in their catalogs. In fact, a recent survey from 2019 by Lee and Lowe Books found that the publishing industry was 76% white. I asked Rika about the state of equity in the cookbook industry specifically. There needs to be more diversity in-house and publishers on the editorial staff in the publicity department, in the marketing department, in the sales department, all throughout, um, so that when these books are purchased, people know how to help the author represent her voice, how to market and publicize and sell these books. When I was an editor, I mean, I'm half Puerto Rican, I certainly look white. I, you know, at one point was really sort of the most diverse person in the room, and that's really problematic. So yes, absolutely. Um, That's an area of uh, great weakness and certainly cause for change in the publishing industry. Has the industry made sort of broader strides that we should be acknowledging? I think so. I mean, I think the sorts of books that people are interested in and the projects that editors are buying have broadened in the past few years. Um, It really used to be dominated by television personalities or by folks with these you know, huge platforms who are most frequently white. And I think that now there is an understanding and a willingness to go deeper into cuisines and cultures and to think more about who we're putting forth as experts. And that can be and should be, I think, in my mind, people who have an expertise in that culture, people who are from that culture, people who, you know, are very passionate about sharing that with other people. It's not to say one can only do that, but I do think that those voices that we're elevating should be We should take another look at that. I've had success with books that are pushing the, I don't know about the norms, but pushing things a little bit. I represent Rima Seal, and she was very adamant about doing a book that represents her heritage, which is Syrian and Lebanese, and that has, you know, Palestinian that has the word Arab in it. Um, You know, her thing is, this is not all Israeli cuisine. This is not all, um, the cuisine of the region is not all attributable to one culture. I mean, that book garnered a lot of interest and there was a a lot of demand for it. Um, So that, you know, I think is heartening. Um, Angela Dimiuga was very clear that she, you know, has always been very clear that she is queer Filipinx. And that is what her book is going to be about that cuisine. It's going to represent her, her family, her identity. And she has been very clear about that. And again, there was great interest in her book as well. So I'm seeing things open up and people are finally realizing that there's more to say and more people to say it. We've been having a number of conversations with people in the industry, sort of as you know, and it it feels like we're sort of in this moment right now of a real introspection. I'm wondering if you can sort of share some thoughts on what this moment feels like to you, if this feels like a time when like publishers or the industry are sort of like making significant changes, or if we're going to not to sound negative, too negative, right, but no. if we're going to end up disappointed sort of at the end of this period that we're in again. Right. I don't know. I hope yeah. not. I hope the fact that we've all been working from home shows that one doesn't necessarily need to live in New York City, which is expensive in order to do various jobs. I'm hoping that, that there is finally some diverse hiring, but it's it's been 
a really long time, a really long time coming. And it's publishing is slow. And I hope that if there is indeed diverse hiring, that those people are then supported in-house. I think cultures need to change. Uh, there's a lot to be done to get things on a more equitable playing field. I'm concerned, for sure. Um, I'm heartened by what I am seeing, but I think you could also, it's a lot, it often feels like too little too late. Like why has it taken this long? Catch up. That's Rika Alanique. She's a literary agent that specializes in cookbooks, among other genres, at the David Black Literary Agency. She has worked with authors such as David Chang, Christina Tosi, and Ina Garten, and she writes that she brings her, quote, love of food and everything French, as well as her Puerto Rican heritage, to her role. We also talked with literary agent Sally Eckes, co-owner of the Lisa Eckes Group. That's Lisa as in her mother, who started what they describe as, quote, the first public relations agency devoted to publicizing cookbooks, chefs, and food products. I asked Sally first to share how the Lisa Eckes Group thinks about equity in their day-to-day work. This is a question that we've been asking ourselves for a while, mainly because As literary agents, we are a form of gatekeepers in our industry. And as gatekeepers, we have, in my opinion, a responsibility to scout, represent, amplify, and celebrate many voices at the table and and on the shelf. So how does that sort of manifest itself in your work then as an agent? Like, how do you sort of um, think about, you know, who you're working with and, and also, you know, who you're helping sort of as you're working with authors, you know, navigate this industry that often hasn't historically been great at um, centering non-white voices. Yeah. I mean, it's actually been pretty shitty, right? Like, let's be honest. Um, I've been doing a lot of reflecting over the past couple of weeks in particular, and a lot of the rejection notes that we've gotten for our clients, you know, have been resonating with me. I've been thinking about them and I'm running through sort of those party lines, like this is too niche, or we don't, know how to break this out in a major way, or, you know, we don't see a market for this. And those are really general blanket statements that I'm sure a lot of people who have either published or, you know, been trying to get published have heard before. But I'm asking myself more concretely and critically, what are those rejection letters really saying? As an agent, what can I do to dig deeper into those rejections and educate the editors that I'm pitching and or the people that I'm scouting to work with on how to craft the language in a proposal, which is ultimately like the document in the industry that you sell a book off of. How do we add to a proposal to make it a really expansive, specific document that helps people show, uh, helps people learn, you know, what is this author going to do to help sell this book? And what is the opportunity here? And how do we not just rely on previous opportunities or success or non-successes in the industry, but really um, create create one, right? It's time to create more, more room on the shelf. Sally has sold more than 125 cookbook deals as an agent. Her mother and co-owner Lisa has sold 400. I asked her how the industry might change and what this moment could mean for the future of cookbook publishing. Well, I think as we're looking at the grotesque disparity of people of color in any position in public, in any variety of positions in publishing, there's just the fundamental reality that there's not enough diversity at the editorial table or the promotional table or marketing table in order to get these books, any sort of um, attention or, you know, creative campaign. You're looking, you want to look at the book itself. What is the content in the book? 
And how do we design a campaign specific to this book versus that book, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we could talk about a lack of accountability, though I think if we talk about a lack of accountability, we're ultimately still talking about the system in place currently. And right now, we're uniquely poised to bring more diverse voices and roles to the table. And so rather than looking at the sort of blame of it, I would rather reframe it into, you know, where do we go from here? What are the questions we can be asking uh, in terms of where do we go from here? And is, you know, first and foremost, am I being a responsible gatekeeper? Do I have the knowledge to promote or represent this book adequately? Um, or am I coming from a place of bias and privilege intentionally or unintentionally? And is there feedback that I should be listening to so I can ultimately do my job better or step aside and, and bring someone else to the table to do the job? Do you think that there is hope for the industry at large sort of reforming itself? Or does there need to be sort of like a mass change in power? I mean, obviously, we talk a lot about there need to be more people of color actually right. hired and in roles of power. But like, what, what level of that is it going to take to actually shift? Or can the industry sort of reform itself at the same time? Well, I, I always fall on the side of hope, uh, because that, that's a more positive perspective to come from. That being said, we've got a pretty ingrained, broken industry right now. But there are a lot of really wonderful shifts happening. So I, I would like to, to land on, yes, the industry will reform, reinvent, and re-envision where we can go. Not all of that re-envisioning is going to or should happen from the people who are, who are doing that sort of re-education right now. I talked with Sally about the introspection she says is taking place in the cookbook industry today. We have these really wonderful and sometimes really challenging relationships with all different publishers. And so the past few weeks has been a mix of, you know, business as usual. We've always been looking for unique voices and we're continuing to, you know, integrate that desire for diversity and need for diversity into our publishing list. So, you know, just keep us in mind to really clear emails like, hey, I'm changing gears and I want to know who, which Black authors you represent. And for me, it's been really, uh, you know, there's hope there for sure, right? They're asking good, important questions, but it's also been a really hard pill to swallow because when I get those emails, I'm basically like, you saw the you saw the proposal from X client and you passed on it and we've always represented people of color and we sold those projects and they're in production right like it's been hard to get those emails because I've I've mixed feelings about it I like the intention of change and fit and equity and I struggle with how stark it's become although certainly we are in a time of intense momentum and movement and change and with that comes, you know, a stark reality of, of what the industry is doing. There's never been a better time to elevate um, underpublished and underrepresented voices. I think you've interviewed Tony Tipton Martin. Um, mm-hmm. She's a great example of someone who has built a career and is continuing to be promoted and celebrated during this particular time. But also, you know, she's been around for a while, writing and winning awards and selling books and. She's a great representation of somebody who can be a sense of hope right now, but also just a real example of the industry supporting the longevity of her career. Um, and on the flip side of that, I, I believe you're talking with um, Haley Thomas, who has mm-hmm. a book coming out at the end of the month called Living Lively. And you yeah. know, to me, she's the next generation of, literally, she's, she's young, the next generation of 
equity at the table and a, a seat for everybody. That was Sally Eckes, literary agent and co-owner of the Lisa Eckes Group. You can hear our conversation with Tony Tipton Martin, which we referenced here on our website or in our archives. And stay tuned for our conversation with Haley Thomas as part of this series. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with the second part of this episode. Conversations you won't want to miss with food writers Ileana Masonette and Osai Endelin, as well as cookbook editor Christina Garces. If you follow the ins and outs of the cookbook industry or that of food writers, you've likely come across Ileana Masonette. Until recently, she was a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, where her column, Cocina Bariqua, made her the first Puerto Rican food columnist in the country. Most recently, she also shared her experience engaging with former Bon Appetit magazine editor-in-chief Adam Rapoport. You can hear more about that in our previous episode. But all along, Ileana has been working toward one goal, publishing her own cookbook. She's been working on it for years, in fact. In 2016, she published a 24-page booklet version via Kickstarter. The idea was to help get the word out and also to use as part of her proposal to publishers. Last year, she shared screenshots of some of the rejections she had received on Twitter, and famous chefs and authors like Jose Andres lended their support to her efforts. But still, nothing. I asked Ileana if she could describe what the experience has been like for her, a hopeful first-time cookbook author who's trying to navigate this industry. I just kept moving forward. So along the way, I got a lot of advice on everything has been for the book. I just want to say that. like Everything that I've ever done in my career has literally all been for the book. People said, you know, you should, you have to do more writing. I, you know, I've been doing nothing but freelance writing this entire time. People said you have to get, you know, you should get a column. Well, I got a column. You know, oh, you need to win an award. And I talked to Nick Sharman. He said nobody was interested in my cookbook until I won an ISAP award. Then people came knocking on the door. Well, I got an ISAP award and still no one gave a shit. So everyone kept saying the same thing. Low social media following, no platform, there's no market for it. Those three things, as subversive and not streamlined as the entire publishing world is, because each agent and each publisher all say totally different things. It's really based on that individual person as opposed to the industry at whole. The one thing they all said in common was no platform, low social media numbers, and the market doesn't want it. I asked Ileana if that was surprising to her, knowing how hard it would be for a first-time author to break through, and knowing the systemic issues around equity that exist within a predominantly white industry. I think it depends on how naive you are. I didn't really uh-huh. see it as a systemic problem. I saw it as a nobody knows who the fuck I am problem. For a long while, not, it didn't seem like anybody but celebrity chefs or celebrity food personalities were the ones getting cookbooks. And I didn't really take that as necessarily a thing about race. I saw that more about nobody knows who I am. I didn't see it, that as an issue at all, really, for the longest time. And maybe that's just me being naive, or maybe that's me being optimistic. I prefer naive because I'm not the most optimistic person anyway. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, I just didn't see it that way. Like, I saw me trying to bag an agent that way because, you know, over the course of me speaking to so many agents who didn't understand, well, who kept telling me, 
you know, no one understands Puerto Rican food or it's hard enough to sell, you know, cookbook that it kind of focuses on one culture, let alone two cultures, which is what I'm trying to do because my life is being a diaspora Rican. I was born and raised in California. I wasn't born and raised in Puerto Rico, but I am Puerto Rican. So to them, those two things, they didn't know how to market that. Ileana said it was only recently, she says actually in the last few months, that she finally thought something larger might be at play than just a low social media following. Everybody was getting the cookbook except for me. And I'm like, yay, congratulations. I'm so excited for you. Meanwhile, I'm super jealous, of course. Right. I'm like, yay for you, but also fuck that. I had done all the work and it comes to a point where you're like, okay, it can only be two things. Either my proposal is just so fucking terrible that no one has the ganas to tell me that you know the balls to tell me that uh-huh which i would ex- i would totally take that right or it's because of the color of my skin those are the only two things that we have come down to because i've done the work i've won the awards i got the column what more do i fucking have to do and it's the same thing with freelance writing too like when you pitch of course there's a chance that your idea is going to be terrible okay i get that but when shit comes out, like what came out with Bon Appetit, you come to the point where you're like, okay, well, all this time was it that my idea was so fucking terrible or was it because they didn't fucking want to publish my idea because of the color of my skin, because of the content that I wanted to produce? Yeah. That is a frustrating place to fucking be when you walk away from that shit. Ileana has been navigating both the food media and cookbook industries, and she shared her thoughts with me on what needs to happen to make them more equitable moving forward. I mean, we would have to have people that look like us that are in power, period. That's There's no other way around it. How do we even get to a place like that? Like, do we even have the resources? Do we have the funds? Like, everything that gets you to a place in power in publishing, all the steps that you would require or they would require for you to even get to that type of position, all are caught up in, we just have to, we have to fight for so much of it. Like, you would need, first, you would need an education. Well, that right there is already a fucking issue because it's hard as fuck for a person of color to get an education in the first damn place because we don't really come from a position to even pay for that shit. And financial aid is like totally dwindling. And then if if you went to school and you got an internship or you graduated, there aren't very many places that are going to take a person of color on board under their wings like that. You would already need a person like us to be in that position to even give us a chance or affirmative action, which doesn't exist. All the steps along the way to even get to the place in power are all set up for us to fail. Yeah. It's a challenging question because it's a very broad question. I'm only one person. Like, that's a whole lot of shit wrapped up in that question. That's food writer Ileana Masonette. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at EatGordaEat. Okay, so we've heard from literary agents, we've heard from authors and those hoping to publish a cookbook. Now we're going into the belly of the beast, so to speak, but much less scary. You're about to hear from Christina Garces, who is senior editor of Food and Lifestyle for Chronicle Books. Chronicle has published a number of the books featured on Salt and Spine, from Nick Sharma's Season to We Are La Cocina to Julia Tertian's Feed the Resistance. I asked Christina first if she could reflect on where the publishing industry is today and how she thinks about equity in her work. It's been really interesting to me these last few weeks. Um, I am Latinx and as somebody who spent, you know, most of my life not seeing myself and others like me kind of represented in the books that I was most interested in um, and that covered my interests. 
it's something that I really think about all the time and that I have thought about for, you know, kind of my entire career. I realize that like I have, this is such an incredible privilege um, to decide which books get made and to convince, you know, to be the champion of those books in our, our publishing houses. And it's not, it's a privilege that I take really seriously just because there are so few, you know, people of color, especially in food media, especially in the cookbook space and frankly in publishing overall. So yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, every time I evaluate a project, I think that, you know, there's, it's really important to me to, to work with people who are speaking from places of knowledge and experience um, of their, their own spaces. Um, working with um, a diverse roster of authors is really important to me. Christina says her goal has always been to empower people to share their experiences and stories from a wide range of backgrounds and to, quote, distill the essence of their visions into amazing transformative projects that appeal to a wide range of people. We talked about how that mission has felt recently and what conversations are taking place inside publishing houses today. Lately at Chronicle, um, you know, this is like a conversation that we've been having um, where it's been really interesting to see the difference in the, the experiences of, you know, editors of color versus the experience of other editors um, in, in the publishing industry. You know, I, I'm somebody who happened to be the only non-white person in my editorial group for the first 10 years of my publishing career, wow. um, which is kind of incredible when you think about it. I will say, I just to make it clear, I've been at Chronicle now since January, but I've been you know at other places before this. This wasn't all all one place. I was actually at three different places before I was. I finally had a colleague who was not white. I mean, in I'm in my early 30s, and in my time um, acquiring books, I've I've heard the phrase "Black people don't buy books" in a meeting in meetings. This is a, wow. a problem that is pervasive in our industry, um, especially because our industry is extremely homogenous and um, very exclusive in a lot of ways and caters to a very specific kind of person. I think it's like surprising for for me and for a lot of my um, other, you know, BIPOC colleagues to sort of realize that this is not something that's been at the forefront of other people's minds. And I think we're very much still in this place of kind of acknowledging and um, kind of becoming aware and there's still some work to be done about moving beyond that awareness into this deeper self-reflection and commitment and eventually, you know, serious action to make sure that the cookbooks that we're publishing and, and the books that we're publishing in general, you know, reach, reach a wide range of voices. One thing we sometimes hear from cookbook authors is that they're siloed into the cuisine or culture that they're writing about, and that alone could be the basis of a rejection. Statements like, oh, we already have an Indian cookbook on our fall roster, we don't need another one. Or say a publisher takes on a cookbook about, for instance, Filipino food, but it doesn't sell as well as the publisher might like. Does that open the door to the publisher saying no to other Filipino proposals based on that topic alone? I asked Christina about these challenges. Often... I get worried when I'm trying to acquire something new because I think if this book doesn't work, then I'm not going to be able to acquire any more books like this because our industry is very much based on comps and have the comps done well and what is a, a platform like and and that sort of thing, which are all important things and should not be discounted. But I also feel like with a lot of these books, especially cookbooks, you get one chance at you know, a Shanghainese cookbook, you get one chance at a Cuban cookbook. And then if that book doesn't work, then like we don't publish any more of those in a way that I don't think that we 
look at books, especially cookbooks by white authors. There's another thing I wanted to ask Christina about. I've also talked to some of our guests about being told that the audience is too narrow for their book, sometimes to the point of just being offensive. I was thinking back to our interview with Carla Hall, which you can find in our archives, when she talked about publishing executives telling her that she shouldn't write a book focused on soul food for fear of alienating a broad audience. I asked Christina if and how that notion that a book by a non-white author would only appeal to consumers who look like them exists in the cookbook industry. What I found really interesting through all of this is that you know, growing up, I mean, I'm I'm not that old. And as a child, like I didn't have any books that had Hispanic characters. Like I didn't have dolls that looked like me, you know? And yeah. in the books that I was reading, I never felt like I couldn't see myself in those books just because I only saw white faces in them. And I think that there is some weird expectation that if a Black author is writing a book, that only Black readers will be interested in it in a way that there isn't for for white authors. And I definitely think that that is something, you know, I and I don't think that it's so overt, but it's definitely something that I've, you know, that I've talked about with my teams in the past where there is like a sense that I think it's kind of trying to evaluate why we feel like a certain idea is small. Is it small because we feel like the, the idea itself is small or do we feel like it's narrow because you only see black faces in the book and you're worried that only black faces will be interested in buying it? And I think that that is a really important distinction and something that I've definitely had to explore quite a lot um, in projects that I've tried to bring for acquisition. You know, the last several weeks have really brought a lot of this to light in the sense that it's, I think it's no longer acceptable to say that you don't know how to market a book or to sell a book or to publicize a book if we've already acquired it. There's different, different communities that we aren't serving. And regardless of whether we have people in positions of power that are from those communities, we have to figure out ways to better serve those communities. And it doesn't just stop at acquiring more diverse books. We need to also be able to give those books the chance to succeed so that we don't then look back and say, well, this Shanghainese cookbook was not successful because we didn't know how to market it. But then someone else is looking at that comp and saying, well, Shanghainese books just don't sell, so we're not going to do another one of those. And it's kind of a self-perpetuating issue. So I definitely yeah. think that, that that's something that we, you know, we're looking at very closely right now and having really important and frankly, sometimes uncomfortable conversations about how we can address those issues. I asked Christina how she feels about the industry moving forward. We're in a moment where it feels like the spotlight is strong, but many of us are worried on whether there will actually be any real change. I'm so proud to do the job that I do. And I feel so excited every time I have a new call with an author. I feel like when you hit on a good idea and you find somebody who can tell that story, it's like gold. Like it feels just so exciting to like help that person tell their story and get their voice out in the world, especially when you know that people like them have been underserved in the past. And so I get so much. I mean, I think we all know that publishing is not the best paid industry in the entire world. Sure. Um, so you get a lot of gratification from like being able to make a difference. And I think, you know, especially in cookbooks and, and illustrated books, like sometimes it can feel like you're working on things that are a little bit frivolous, even though they're fun, but it does feel like this is a way that I can like change the conversation and change an industry that I felt was, you know, really exclusionary for a long time. And that feels extremely gratifying to me. And the fact that we're having these conversations 
you know, it's, it's not enough to just have the conversations, right? Like we have to take action from these conversations. But I think for the first time ever, I feel like change will happen from this moment. It really feels like people are listening in a way that they weren't before and that we're sort of kind of evaluating these industry norms and how they've been harmful in the past and what we can do to kind of negate some of that harm. And so that going forward, you know, colleagues and, and authors and, you know, different people are going to be able to like have the space for their stories to be told in a way that, that, that we didn't have before. For consumers, for, for people who consume cookbooks, who are out buying cookbooks, Julia Tertian, our friend, wrote a, a piece a while back for Eater and one of the about equity in, in cookbook publishing industry. And one of the things she has sort of asserted is that consumers have incredible power. Is there like a message that you have for cookbook lovers, people who buy cookbooks about how they can sort of help push the industry in a more equitable direction? Yeah. I mean, you use your dollars, right? You buy Mm -hmm. books from different kinds of people. Um, I think there's been a a huge kind of outpouring of, you know, people trying to diversify their Instagram feeds and uh, diversify the media that they consume. And that's, you know, that's great. That's a start. And I think that we can definitely take that into the book space as well. I think you really saw that in um, Christina Gill's Tasting Room recently. I mean, I I thought it was really heartening that her fans came in and really kind of started buying up copies of this book. It really shows that there is a hunger and people do want to learn about different authors and different cuisines and see different perspectives. I think having these conversations where now we're like prioritizing voice over rules, like not italicizing foreign words, like that whole New York Times um, deciding to capitalize B in Black. These are the conversations that we should have been having all along, but I'm happy that they're happening. You know, like I'm happy that this is a moment. I'm not happy why it started, but I'm happy that this is a moment that I think there's been this like real groundswell of kind of support and encouragement and, you know, people coming out and saying like, this is the way it's always been. And sometimes that's not good enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there is a lot, especially in the cookbook space, there's just so much there's so many amazing voices. And I think that we're all kind of in this business because we know that books can change how people think and introduce they can introduce you to new people and new ideas. And like, if we're going to share this magic, like we have to broaden who the creators who contribute to our books are, both as in collaborators and creators and, and editors, I mean, in every step of the process. That's Christina Garcez, senior editor of Food and Lifestyle at Chronicle Books. Across the publishing industry, calls for meaningful efforts to address inequity within the corporations are reverberating. In June, more than 1,300 publishing employees staged a day of action. Organizers wrote in a statement to the Associated Press, quote, We protest our industry's role in systemic racism, its failure to hire and retain a significant number of Black employees or publish a significant number of Black authors, and its pursuit of profit through books that incite racism. And authors, including a couple of cookbook authors, took to Twitter recently to engage in the hashtag PublishingPaidMe, which aimed to draw attention to the disparity and compensation that people of color face. Science fiction writer N.K. Jemison tweeted that book advances represent, quote, the publisher's confidence in consumers. She continues, yeah, racism has an impact on that confidence. In a racist industry trying to sell books to a racist public within a racist society, come on. Implicit bias alone will make negotiations harder. There are overtly biased gatekeepers, too. Racist Voltron. 
Finally, I called up James Beard winning food writer Osai Endelin, who's written about food media, cookbooks, and identity at large. I started by asking Osai to weigh in on how she sees the industry responding to this moment, and how she views equity and representation in cookbook publishing. We started talking, too, about how the predominantly white industry affects cookbook projects specifically. So the good news is, is that there are a ton of opportunities to create equity and have a real rich and textured and layered representation on a project. And I guess those may be funny words to use when describing personnel, but, you know, meaning that um, I want to see the, the best person for the job, not necessarily the person who was available or the person who the editor knew from a previous project or a person who was on a book that sold well in the past, but that previous book has nothing to do with the subject matter of this project. So, you know, the casting, which falls to different people at different points in the process, is a bit of a moving train in that if it starts wrong, it can be really hard to correct. For people who are not necessarily looking to dive into book publishing or cookbook publishing specifically, we should just frame this as a conversation that's applicable to pretty much any storytelling environment and probably a lot of other industries too. Uh, but this is a conversation that we're seeing a lot of feedback on right now in terms of the podcast world, in terms of what you see on your streaming platforms for TV. So, you know, I would love for people to map this on to whatever part of their life feels most relevant because there's probably some power you have there, even as a consumer and viewer or reader, to help enact the change that I think many of us really want to see. I asked Osai about how that metaphor, that a book project is like a train and it's hard to course correct, impacts the editorial process of creating a cookbook. But if any part of the project goes off the rails, you know, you can look up and you have recipe head notes that don't make sense ingredients that are defined in, in, in inaccurately. Tone can be borderline offensive, if not downright just off-putting. And this, ne- this doesn't come from people wanting to do poorly. Nobody wants to waste time. Nobody wants to waste money. But this kind of goes to <laughs> the core idea of this open letter I wrote a few weeks ago out of my frustration with the uh, juxtaposition of statements of support for Black people during this, you know, period of just raw civil unrest and what the track record has been for so many of these organizations claiming to care about black lives, you know, and then this open letter was like a resignation letter that I said, anybody in media can sign this, but especially in food. And it happened to, I, I put it up the same day, uh, Tammy Takamari posted the photo of Adam Rappaport uh, dressed as a Puerto Rican man Right. That was not intentional, right? Like I had been working on the piece in my head for like, I don't know, probably years. Sure. <laughs> and so like I like busted it out that morning and I put it up on, you know, Twitter. And then the next thing I know, there was all this chaos going on. And uh, so I think some people assume that I had been responding to uh, the news of Adam's uh, resignation, um, but I was actually just frustrated in general. But one of the core ideas in that letter was like, if you are not able to uh, decenter, you know, European framing from all of your approaches to food and food writing, then you're not qualified to be a leader in the editorial space in in today's America. You're just not good for the you're just not good for the job. And if you're a white person who's doing that specifically, there are other aspects to your 
lifestyle and upbringing and probably just point of view of the world that is deeply embedded into this ignorance. I don't know why people who can go to Japan and know all the spots to eat at underground and above ground and behind the mountain and all this stuff can't like buy 10 books and read those books here at home in the language that they speak and become. So, you know, I'm not saying that you can only write about things from which you have direct experience or that you've grown up in that culture. But that's a scene that plays out in media and food media all too often. That resignation letter that Osai referenced is linked on our website and would work for, as she signs in the sample letter, quote, almost any senior level staffer at just about any food media publication or cultural organization. If I get one more email from one more white lady telling me in the face of my query or you know, counterpoint, how long they've been in the business, my response is going to be, then this is your fault. (laughs) You know, you're complicit in the situation that you're dealing with right now, where you have bad content, because you're not the right editor for this project. You actually can't contribute very much to the chef who you lured to, to make a book with you. You can't give feedback to the writer because they don't know this stuff. And, you know, you're creating something that's probably going to create more problems than it solves. Osai and I talked about publishers now, in this moment, looking to publish Black authors that they weren't before, or making promises to address inequity that have fallen through before or not been serious to begin with. If you had a hundred years of your publishing company doing things a particular way, you can't just bust out a new book and expect everyone's going to come running to it. Maybe that'll happen sometimes, but for the most part, you're going to have to stock your your company and, and build new relationships and maybe hit the pavement, maybe humble yourself a little bit. People don't know yeah. you. Who are you? You're climbing up this tree all of a sudden. What do you want? There's a level of suspicion. Um, nobody wants to be the flash in the pan. Are you serious? Are you invested? You have to build those relationships with booksellers. You have to build those relationships with audiences. And just because you have a fancy address in Manhattan on your business card doesn't mean that you're going to glean interest right away when you have been saying no to people left and right for decades. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's unreasonable. You, you, you wouldn't get a date from somebody if you, if you had that approach. Why do you think <laughs> you're going to be in business with folks? Like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I think that taps into, I think a lot of what people are feeling with the publishing industry right now. And that like, we're seeing publishers, signing black authors for cookbook deals that they weren't signing before and like holding that up as like a symbol of their like desire or their path to change or making statements of solidarity these sort of set of actions that sort of feel really small in the scheme of things and like it's really unclear if there's any sort of systemic change happening do you think that any of those things point to progress or like does the industry need to be rebuilt? Do folks just have like blinders on because of their whiteness, because of the power they hold, because of the way the industry is built, that those things won't be successful or and, and we need to just basically build it again um, and change who holds power? Right now, based on what I know as an outsider, so I'm not on staff at any mm-hmm. company right now. I don't see decisions being made that bode well for the future uh, long term. I see folks being very concerned with not looking bad and with wanting to sort of make, you know, make Band-Aid measures. Oh, we're going to get some new crop of sensitivity readers. Uh, So for folks who don't know, 
But those are folks who come in at the end of the process. They usually get paid uh, a couple hundred bucks, few hundred bucks to read a project at, you know, at the end of its cycle and maybe flag a few things here and there. It's supposed to be your last, it's one of like your last um, measures to ensure the integrity of a, of a book project. Um, oh, you know, we're going to bring someone in to do some diversity and inclusion training. And it's like, okay, well, that, those are good, but those are not systemic transformations that are going to help you mitigate a future of, of more problems, right? Those are, those are tiny, tiny steps that do as much. And it sounds like, you know, folks are doing as much as they can to maintain the status quo. Yeah. And I look at that and I say, look, if you're, if you're an editor, you know, at a major publisher, what's your incentive to do the big transformation? You want to keep your job, even though I have this resignation letter handy for you. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. You know, I revert to, you know, you're not qualified. Right. Um, and so like, are you really going to put in the time to, to have the level of training and, and insight and clarity so that you can actually support the people doing the projects that you want to buy? What I would be looking for is, you know, you need to hire, you need, you need to hire and not just hire one person to be a catch all. You need to look at your entire workflow. And I know you don't want to say like, well, I'm going to fire this person because they're white. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, is the person qualified? You know, what's the job description? What are, what are the demands? What are the needs of this role today? Can people get there? Can they, can they do that training? Can they get that expertise in a period of time? If they can't, do they need to move to a different part of the organization? Who can you bring in? And then the next complaint is, oh, oh, Lord, we don't have a pipeline. There's no one in the pipeline. We can't find anybody. Well, then you're going to have to develop those relationships. You're going to have to go look. I always like to use this example because ta Coates has spoken so liberally about how, you know, he was mentored. He was mentored on the job by David Carr, right? And he came yeah. from a non-traditional environment. And aren't we so thankful, right? And And the lie that America tells is that, there's only one Tanahasi, right? I, I think folks like that will be the first to tell you there's a lot of brilliance out here. I'm not even the brilliant, the most brilliant one, right? He was teed up, he swung hard, but he also had an opportunity to do so. Are you creating other opportunities for people to step to bat? And if you're not, what's going on there? I think organizations need to be rigorous in their approach of saying, listen, we can't just count on seven schools uh, to feed us you know, our, our next generation of players, we need to be going out there and finding them. Some, you know, your next great book editor might be a line cook right now, sweating it out. You know, how are you going to know? What changes do you need to make to bridge that gap? That's what I'm looking for. I'm not hearing about it. Maybe it's happening behind the scenes, but the inquiries that I'm getting and the text messages and the DMs and the emails that I'm getting are all like, you know, garnish. <laughs> it's <laughs> all like, oh, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And I'm nodding and I'm going like, you know, you're going to have to bring it. You're going to have to come with more and it's going to have to descend you. You know, your salary might go down to make room for this person or three people, right? But I know that this is going to, and people will say, oh my gosh, like what a loss, but what are you going to gain, right? This is new terrain. And a lot of folks, honestly, Ryan, they don't know how to operate in it. You know, yeah. when, when, when we decenter whiteness, a lot of folks get vertigo. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden they don't know up and down, they're nauseous, freaking <laughs> out. Uh, you know, so, you know, you really want to start thinking about, you know, who can have these conversations? Who can, who can say like, 
this is not the right way to talk about this dish. This this dish comes from a particular tradition, blah, blah, blah. You know, you need folks on your team who are going to do that and you need it all the way down the line. Have you seen any progress in the industry? Like, are there bright spots? Are there things we can say this is, I don't want to be too, you know, positive because we're talking about the reality. Um, yeah. But are there, is there hope? Yes, but you know what? I feel that it comes at too high a cost. And so I'm not satisfied. You know, I, I call it, you know, um, derisively, the crumb buffet. I'm not here for the crumb buffet. I want the whole damn multi-course meal with the special flatware, you know, everything. Yeah. Just like y'all. Yeah. Just like y'all, right? So it's not going to look right. And this is a jarring image for many people, but it gets you there because even if you, you know, don't know exactly what I'm talking about, you've seen this in other places in America. When the C-suite and when the, the, the highest level of leadership in an organization looks the same demographically as the group of people who are signing for the packages and checking in the visitors downstairs, that's when you'll start getting people cooling out. Yeah. That's when we at least we have a shot at it. Right. Because power is power. And just because you're a person of color in a leadership role doesn't mean that you are actually concerned with equity, um, which is a whole nother conversation. But it's going to look different. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the thing I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to get across to folks with the whole Band-Aid approach. I'm like, nah, it, it's going to look a lot more browner. <laughs> And yeah. I know that was not correct English, but I said that on purpose, right? It's, it's going to be real, real different. And as long as you look across your agency and you see everybody, you know, yeah, you may come from different backgrounds and one person might be Jewish and one person might be from, you know, whatever. But, you know, you're still kind of aligning around a particular perspective and you're going to have to actually change your vibe. And, or, you know, you're going to, you're, you're going to disappear. Um, so I think that, um, that I see little bits of progress, but it, again, it's like, it's, it's troubling. You know, I've seen white co-authors try to make power moves with chefs of color that they're collaborating with in ways that I know they have never done and would never do with white chefs. That's troubling to me, right? Because you saw an opportunity through someone's naivete and you took it. Instead of, you know, be, being a true ally, instead of, you know, decentering yourself. Um, so I think it's going to require a lot more people walking the walk. And um, I think it's going to require uh, some changing of the guard. Some of these folks, you know, so-called gatekeepers, you don't even know what stories to look for, you know, because because you are so outside the world of, of you know, these different cultures and cuisine. So you don't even know what questions to ask. Right. How, how humbling is that? But it's also very exciting because that means that in the next, you know, five, ten years, our bookshelves could look so much richer. And that's an exciting prospect. That's food writer Osai Endelin. After our conversation, she also shared some thoughts via email on an aspect of cookbook publishing we didn't have time to dive into on this episode, photography. That's another part of the process Osai says is, quote, full of opportunities to destroy a project or make it shine. She continued, quote, like people being asked to visually capture or style food that they don't know how to eat. This happens often in media, which can include incorrect or illogical plating and other unnecessary blips. This is important, too, and it's another place that editors or gatekeepers often miss the mark. And on-location photography can present even more challenges. 
Osayi writes, Imagine being accountable for photographing dishes in someone's restaurant or home, and you as a white photographer have never been in a position of reporting to a person of color in leadership, or you've never been in the home of a person of color. She notes that is a lot of white people and mentions some podcasts we'll link to in our episode notes. She continues, You would miss a lot of cues and misinterpret others. You can find Osai Endelin on Twitter and Instagram at Osai Endelin. Her forthcoming book uses American restaurant culture to explore systemic racism in the food world. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned next week as we discuss the importance of having a diverse food media landscape, including outlets that are owned and led by non-white journalists. You can, of course, find bonus content from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. And remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Of course, you can also join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and producer Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Every weekday, I cover a bunch of stuff. Policies, social issues, news of the day, things you actually give a damn about. All right? But if you're listening to the podcast on the Facebook platform, I need you to make a switch. All right? Because that feature is going away on June 3rd. All right? June 3rd, that feature will go away. So I need you to jump on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast to make sure that I can still keep bringing you this indisputable content. All right, let's make it happen. Don't miss an episode of Indisputable. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.